Welcome to the Halostasis Podcast. Drawing inspiration from the concept of allostasis, meaning remaining stable by being variable, coined by Sterling in R. This podcast celebrates the power of adaptability and responsiveness in achieving personal and professional stability and growth. Inspirational individuals, disruptive ideas, and the power of finding purpose in life. Today's episode, our guest is Dr. Daniel Laby. He is a board-certified pediatric ophthalmologist, sports vision specialist, and former assistant clinical professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Leiby began his work more than three decades ago in professional baseball. Since then, he has worked with thousands of professional athletes, several professional teams from MLB to NBA to NHL, and international teams in different sports. He has more championship rings than most teams, and he has also worked with the USA Olympic team and as a consultant for the Olympic Games. He is a pioneer in this field, and as an author, he has published several of the first ever articles in the High Impact Factor journals and contributed with the concept of the Sports Vision Pyramid. This concept is regarded as fundamental and a paradigm shift in this field. He has done a TEDx at Historic Fenway Park, and his work has been featured in Sports Illustrated, The New York Times, and The Boston Globe. Lastly, he is the holder of three US patents, as well as several international patents in the field of sports vision. Welcome to the Halostasis Podcast, Dr. Levy. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation and being here. Thanks, Philippe. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So let's dive right into it. And let me just ask you if you can please present yourself and kind of uh, explain what mission are you on right now? Yeah, I'm a sports, sports vision ophthalmologist, uh, interested in really helping athletes perform at their best by giving them their best vision, their best use of the vision, and the best application of what they see to create a motor action to perform in their sport. That's been my mission for about 30, 30 of the past years, and it's been a constantly challenging and changing changing endeavor. How did you came about this mission? What was it? What was the moment that kind of defined this and you know you knew that this was something that you wanted to pursue? <laughs> totally by accident. Um, it, it's actually pretty pretty interesting because when I was doing my fellowship at UCLA, I was given a project and asked to complete it, and it happened to do with the vision of the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team. And I really wasn't planning on doing anything in sports. I was working in pediatrics, uh, pediatric ophthalmology at that point. But the, the, the head of the program really wanted me to do this project, and I said, okay. And that led to 30 years of sports. Wow. So serendipity kind of led you to this. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm inter- I was interested in, in sports as a kid, obviously. I never played sports very well. So I guess this was my opportunity to play sports professionally. Yeah. And um, going to it, did you have any expectations after you started developing the, the, the concept that which you were going to work in? Well, did you know that you would come this far? Uh, did you have any expectations? For instance, I know that you and your group, you have developed the pyramid, uh, the pyramid vision, which kind of stratifies how important are different um, um, settings or, or, or specific teams for then compound to let's just say performance can you explain a bit about that yeah well it's uh i never intended to do sports as i said it was it was uh, totally by accident but what was interesting is that i realized that this area in in medicine and in, in eye care was something that really hadn't been explored in the past and that was what was the the bug that got into me that lit the fire to 
continually try to understand more to figure out what can be done to improve vision, to improve performance. And that that search over the first couple of years led to this concept of the sports vision pyramid. The idea that, like any pyramid, if you have a solid base, you can build uh, a very high and strong and everlasting, like in Egypt or in South America, pyramids that last for thousands of years. That if you have a good base, you could build to a good pinnacle on top, and that top of the pyramid would be performance in the sport for the athlete. So if we started out with the different visual pieces that go to that pyramid, we could build from the bottom up and evaluate, benchmark, intervene, correct, improve, each level to get a very strong pyramid. What people were doing in the field when I started was working at the top of the pyramid and neglecting anything at the bottom. And they ended up with a pyramid that was very wide on top and very narrow on the bottom, and obviously that's the one that falls over. And we sort of flipped that on its head and said we have to work at the bottom and work our way up, not just start at the, at the fancy stuff like training, motor reaction times or something like that, because there's no point yeah. in reacting quickly if you can't see what you're trying to react to. Exactly. and. Why why this matters? Can you explain a bit to the audience why this actually matters, sports vision? People ask me that question a lot, and I tell them, name me a sport that people play with their eyes closed. And pretty much the answer is nothing. Nobody can think of a sport that people play with their eyes closed. Therefore, vision must be important to performance. And if that's true, and if we go with that premise, then the natural thing to be to evaluate the vision, see how we can improve it and improve performance through that. And if we dive a, a bit d deeper on that, the truth is that more recently, or you have came to the conclusion also, or you've worked a lot with not just the part of the vision, of course, vision can be understood as also part of the central nervous system, but also the brain part of it. And that's something that you are very interested in so also, right? So you've been working tremendously on that area too. Absolutely, because, you know, unfortunately, many, many docs feel that vision is simply what the eye does. Exactly. And they miss the entire idea that the vision, the eyes are just a camera, that what the brain does with that information, how it uh, integrates it into an image, how it divides that image into identifying what something is versus where something is, how it uses that to make a decision, and then how that vision is used to coordinate a motor action, to target the motor action to exactly what they need at the right time, all has to do with vision. And so the eyes themselves, where people just think that's vision, is probably the least important piece. Certainly critical, but the least important piece, what you do with the vision afterwards is the most important. Exactly. Thank you for, for, for replying so eloquently. Well, think, think, about, think about, you know, if you're an artist, you give someone the best paper and the best pencil, they're not going to come up with a masterpiece. There's yeah. much more than just a paper and a pencil. Vision is paper and pencil. The brain is creating the masterpiece. Thank you for the illustration. Um, you know, cer certainly um, what I was trying to get was exactly that. And thank you for, for, for answering that, that, uh, that question so well. The, what I wanted to kind of showcase here and, and try people to understand is that the complexity that comes from, from uh, assessing or analyzing or even being aware of what you need to be doing and, and, and training and, and, and assessing first, training after, and then performing with these athletes. So it's, 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 it's focal that people understand how important can it be not to train just the eyes, as you were saying, just that that's the paper, the paper and, the, and the pencil, but you need to train the brain, but you need to understand how they work together and what you need to do in between for that to be optimal. So 
that that's I think the secret sauce. Um, so if I if I had stayed in the homeostasis kind of thinking of vision, where we're just going to do the same thing that everyone's done visually in sports, and that's it, I wouldn't have gotten very far. I wouldn't be speaking to you today, and I wouldn't have spent the last thirty years in sports. What I what I understood pretty early on is you need to understand and you need to learn about what the brain does, what the how the psychology of decision making all these other areas that aren't directly related to vision, how they impact visual function, visual performance, and the use of vision in sports performance. And even the idea that it's not just sports, it has to do with driving a car, it has to do with anything anybody does, they use their vision. It's, it's you know, without your, your, your vision gives the majority of the information to the brain that we use. It's very difficult if you don't have the vision to do, to work at an elite level that you want to work at. It's not impossible. There are many people that don't have vision that do very well. But I don't know of any professional athletes that don't have vision. They don't have vision that's at least minimally good. And so the idea of, of branching out and changing your thinking, changing what you're interested in, changing your, your research to adapt, to bring your, your main theme into a direction that's going to be most, most beneficial, to me, that's the distinction between allostasis and homeostasis. You don't want to just sit in the same place maintaining what you do day after day after day. That's totally boring, and it's a waste of a life. What you want to do is be able to incorporate new ideas, change your direction, and continually kind of wiggle your way towards some target that's going to be most beneficial for yourself, fulfilling for yourself, and obviously for the patients you care for. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's a great thought and certainly in line with, with the team of this podcast. So if now we have to use that, Let's just switch a bit for your personal journey because I think it goes hands in hands in hands with, with, with your professional journey, which is how would you describe yourself in, in, in an allostasis kind of way in your personal journey um, going through these ideas that I'm quite certain that you, you received some backlash or some criticism and, and it was definitely not easy to kind of establish yourself when people were so used to do things differently. So you probably seen the person was the outlier, right? So how was that? Yeah, you know, we, we published the first paper in the standard ophthalmology literature on sports vision. So that's definitely an outlier, uh, never happened before. Um, it, that, it's an uphill battle, but you know, uh, something that's given to you easily isn't worth very much. Something that you fought for and you've worked really hard for over over many years with a lot of effort, that's something that when you finally achieve it, it becomes worthwhile. You know, e even from the personal side, I'm, I'm not an athlete, as I mentioned, I, I, as close to athletics as I've gotten is through sports vision. But that being the case, I still have certain goals I want to achieve. So one of those goals was to run a marathon. Um, in high school, I was never athletic. I, I was always the last child picked for a team when kids would pick different teams. Definitely not the person to be an athlete. But I wanted to make sure that I could run the marathon. And in fact, I ran three of them to be sure that no one could say it was an accident. Um, that took a lot of work, a lot of preparation. It wasn't comfortable. You know, the first time I started running, I only ran about a block, a block near my house. I couldn't run any further. And then it got to be two blocks and it got to be four blocks and it went on and on until, you know, the marathon itself. And my goal was never to win the marathon. That was totally impossible. But my goal was to finish the marathon. And I finished every marathon and I wasn't the last person finished. Uh, I finished about the bottom, let's say the bottom half. The, there was probably 30% people below me. One, the first time I think it took me about five hours, maybe, maybe six hours to, to run the whole thing. 
Um, the other two were a bit better. But the point being, you have to be willing to face resistance and overcome that resistance by changing what you're doing to get around that resistance to be successful. And that's true, I think, in personal life, and I think it's true also in professional life. And we had those challenges in sports vision, and I've had those challenges physically in running marathons. I've had those challenges in, in different places I've lived and different things professionally and personally. That's certainly the case and, and a great analogy to kind of describe how hard things can be, but how worth they can be at the end if you do it uh, for the right reasons. And so you believe deeply in, in your idea and that's why you persevered and you continue to show people and you continue, continue to this day to prove that this is not just something that is valid, is, is, is completely necessary. I think that's the word. It's, it's fundamental for, for establishing a, a good uh, sports medicine department or a good practice anywhere to have this in mind and, and to use this uh, as information to any kind of athlete that, that wants to play um, a sport at um, uh, competition level. So how do you translate this, um, uh, I would say, difficulties and uh, how, not translate, how, what was the biggest failure you had along the way and what did you learn from it um, in, in, in a sense to kind of shift or not, or to maintain your ideas, but what, what was it? Do, can you pinpoint, do you have something that was uh, of notice? Oh, you know, not, not the, the road is not, is not straight, um, and easy. And so there's constantly challenges, uh, at each step of the way every day. And I think the challenges are somewhat created by myself because as I create new goals for myself, there become new challenges and those goals aren't something that happened that fall into my lap. Those are goals that we have to work to get to. And as I mentioned, sometimes you end up with a roadblock and you have to find a different way to get around to get to that goal. Uh, currently, you know, I'm working on some goals that for the past uh, couple of years that constantly have roadblocks, um, but working around that. And sometimes people criticize, you know, the time spent in, in trying to achieve the goal. Um, and sometimes, I think that's valid. Sometimes it's not valid. I think uh, changing, if that doesn't work, changing to a different direction, you know, certainly makes sense. Um, so I would say that nothing in life comes easily. If something comes easily in life, it's probably not worth very much. And the failures, I'd say, are, are numerous. But the strength is being able to move past those failures and come up with a new, a new technique, a new route, a new interest, and move forward. The the thing is, as you said earlier, you're you're the first one to publish about sports vision, at least in a, in, a, in a major scientific paper, right? Uh, journal, and so my question is, who was your inspiration in this field? Did, did you had any, uh, or you were kind of trying to figure out yourself what you were going through? When I started, you know, over thirty years ago, there were some people doing sports vision, but it wasn't at the level. Uh, the medical scientific level that you know we would expect from a, a medical specialty, and so there really was nobody who was who was working in this area. Fortunately, I was working with uh, others at UCLA. Um, one colleague who I've worked with for most of the past thirty years, working in sports vision, uh, an optometrist. Actually, we've been able to very well bounce ideas off each other and kind of uh, hone our direction to be the most productive. Um, both in terms of my ideas and in terms of uh, maybe his bringing ideas more to ground level. Um, 
you know, I think I think you need both to be successful. You need to have somebody who's kind of crazy and thinks of all sorts of things, and somebody else who's able to make it a little bit more realistic and yeah. not uh, flounder in many directions, but pick paths that are going to be more useful. And so that you know, not so much inspiration, but more cooperation, uh, I think, was an important aspect. Yeah. And did you feel that also in your personal? So many times people say we are the product of the five people we we spend the most time with. Do you have at least three people you would say are kind of uh, the most influential people in your life? Um, being that it may be related to work or just prof um, personally. Yeah, what's interesting is um, in, in the professional aspect, it, there isn't any specific person, I think, who uh, who is the main mentor, if you will. Um, but on the personal side, I think, uh, again, the idea of having someone to bounce ideas off of, uh, over, oversee what you're doing to some extent, cooperate, be supportive, um, I think is, is critical. You know, my, and I would say my wife is the one who's done that, uh, pretty much from when I started sports vision. Um, we were married uh, a few years before I, I started the sports vision project. And so that she's somebody who, you know, we, we disagree sometimes. She says, I spent too much time on something. I think it's not enough time. Um, but again, it's that it's that back and forth, that bouncing ideas, that that constant um, wall, if you will, uh, that is flexible sometimes. Sometimes it's not, but that's what I think uh, keeps me in the general right direction, as opposed to going off in one direction too far and then having floundered some opportunities that may have developed otherwise. I, I kind of relate what you just said with with brainstorming. Uh, that that's the term that comes to mind when you're you're discussing this, which is being able to have someone to do that. I think it's it's fundamental. Is one of the things, one of the biggest lessons I, I got from my grandfather from a very young age, in in very different topics. But the the idea of being able to have someone to be our mirror and and kind of reflect, but in a different way, in a different light, in a different perspective, what we are t trying to say or think and and Like you said, sometimes we go way too up and over the top and we need someone to ground us or the contrary may, may be the case. So I think it's um, not just important, I think it's fundamental and very happy that you have found your wife to to be the person to go along in this journey with you. So congratulations. The, the, other, the other thing I think is, uh, the, the other path to, I think is also related to allostasis and success is to have uh, varied interests. Because you'd be surprised at how many things that you're interested in that on the face don't have anything to do with, let's say, sports vision, but eventually somehow come around to have some impact idea, whether it's a quote, whether it's a, a project, whether it's something else somebody did. Um, and so you have to leave yourself some time, I think, for random exploration, we'll call it. Uh, and that may be internet surfing. It might be you know going to a bookstore and looking at what books are on the shelves. And there might be a book that tickles your interest and you go through there and on page 137, there's an idea that becomes a seed for the next sports vision uh, direction to help people perform better. Um, so I think that's that's a critical piece as well. Definitely. And, and thank you for sharing that because I believe that's a very important idea and concept that so many people, I think, they, they, they lose sight of because what happens is that they become so focused in one thing and one thing only that they kind of... Uh, disconnect from the world or from anything else besides that that um, driving force that idea specific to that topic and I myself correlate I really use what you were saying and, and I do uh, use the, those uh, those ideas 
to kind of um, help me build a better, um, how can I say it, a, a better, with a be better fundament, may maybe a, a better base, more stable. So I would say it's kind of connecting the dots, which is some things that can seem just random or not even related with that field. And then all of a sudden, one specific idea of that will make sense. And then correlations start to, to appear and, and you start to have some some ideas that can really be together. And and actually that, that brings me to our first time we, we ever met, which was in Dubai. And I have to thank you for that because you were the one that reached out. And until today, I, I've, you left the seed, like you were saying, you, you were talking about the seed and we'll talk more after we finish this podcast, because uh, this is, this could be a project, but it's too early for, for us to talk here, but it's, it's definitely very important to, to talk with people that can inspire you and, and can, I think, at least, um, show you a different perspective of a topic that maybe you already know or you already have read, or you can even think that you you have good knowledge of it, but having a different perspective, I think changes everything. And that's why I, so many times I say, I say, fooling around that life is about perspective. And I do believe it is because if uh, we're going through the driver's seat, my perspective as the person taking a, a accountability for my life, I, I will choose w which one it is. Uh, the same thing I can be very sad or very happy with. It depends of how grateful I am, how um, dynamic and I can be, and how motivated I can I can be. I think all of that changes. So, what motivates you? You have achieved already so much, and what what keeps you driving? What what keeps keeps you going? I, one thing before that on the on the previous topic, we talked about the importance of, of diversity in your exposure and your experience. On the flip side, you can overdo it. Uh, yeah. if you become too diverse or if you become too focused on your tasks, you're going to lose the ability to kind of randomly associate in your mind, the different things that you're experiencing. So having a break, uh, periodically where you're not actually working on your, in your area becomes very productive as well. So even though you're not working on it directly, your brain actually is, is reorganizing and, and making new associations that become very useful when you go back to work on things. So having whether it's uh, you know when YouTube YouTube personalities every August takes a sabbatical, doesn't do his his podcasts or his work for the month of August, and then comes back supercharged for September yeah. and the rest of the year, or it means taking a weekend off or even a short trip somewhere else, changing your scenery. Those things can be very very critical to allowing you to maximize your ability. So that's that's a, another topic. So you can go you can go too far and you can go too little. The idea is to pick the happy medium. It gives you the most benefit and everyone's going to be different. Some people may need a month. Some people may need a couple days. Everyone's different. You have to find out what's good for yourself. Spinning that for what you were saying, which was the allostasis base of it that you were saying, and you're making that um, uh, parallel between homeostasis and, and halostasis and, and how that works. And you just said going outside and getting other ideas is more like uh, allostasis. Um, going outside and looking for too many things is also in line with the uh, allostasis principle, but we would call it allostasis, um, sorry, allostatic load. And that means mm -hmm. that you are looking for trouble and you will have dysfunction. And that's how we yeah. believe it's, uh, it will derive for dysfunction. And then of this dysfunction, you can call it disease or you can call it whatever you want, illness. So 
it's very interesting that you, you you draw the line here and you you understand these um, these two concepts. It's it's very interesting. Thank you. Um, but I I I, I want to come back to the question that I I I made earlier. So what what keeps you going? Do you have um, an answer for that? Um, I think uh, I'm gonna say one word: curiosity. I think that's that's really what keeps me going and everything. Um, and and you can be too curious, I guess. But you know, I, I look at different projects that I that I um, that I get interested in, whether it has to do with sports, whether it has to do with computer science, uh, software, whether it has to do with books, history. Um, you know, I have I have a fairly diverse interest. You know, I, I had to choose early on in my life whether I wanted to be an archaeologist or a, a doctor, um, and those are very different fields. Um, but to me, they're both fascinating, and I've kind of been interested in both. And I spent some time, you know, working on digs, and I read a lot, and I have, um, you know, a little bit of a collection of things, and, and I constantly want to learn more about archaeology and what kind of what people have left from the past. <laughs> Interesting enough, the more I learn, the more I see that in the 21st century, we may not be quite as far advanced as we think we are compared to where people were in the past, and especially. Uh, we think of ourselves as being, you know, super enlightened and, and technologically savvy and so forth. But you think about how they built the pyramids. You think about how they, you know, built Rome and how the the city was designed. Um, you know, it was pretty good. <laughs> it may be better in some regards than we have now. Uh, yeah. Their their buildings have stood. You know, you go to Rome. You go to places in, in the ancient ancient world. Buildings stand still from when they were built. You know, a thousand, two thousand years ago, and here. In New York City, we had buildings falling apart, um, and they were only built a few decades ago. So we may not be quite as enlightened as we think we are, and that aspect of history to me is fascinating, so I, we learn about that and learn about, um, you know, recently I'm looking at, I'll show you a picture here, you know, looking at uh, what I used to do as a kid at stamps, you know, looking at different stamps or looking at a photograph of where my mom went to high school. Um, all that to me is, is history. And I had a poster when I was a kid that if you, it said, um, well, it had a picture, it was actually, it's kind of my life. It had a picture of a, of a ceramic, old ancient ceramic bowl. And inside of that was a chemistry beaker. So it was the idea of if you knew your past was, you would know where your future is. And to me, that's an important piece. So all these different aspects of my interests kind of come together and some forming my thoughts about sports vision, I think. And that's, uh, you know, people are complex and, Hopefully, I'm yeah. as complex as others. I think it's interesting that idea that we we should learn from the past so we can be better for the future. And I think it's also very important. Uh, I think we are losing a bit or a lot of of that um, way of thinking. Unfortunately, I must say, because it's not just that you learn about the society that we had back then or the building or what they were thinking, it's the ideas, the way they generate things, the way they, they were really groundbreaking at, at that time. And I think very important too is um, the way society worked, you know, um, what was, uh, what defined their success. And we can extrapolate also that in terms of what they seeked, which was personal growth. Um, they seeked uh, sacred practice, which means not necessarily religion, but uh, some kind of spirit spirituality they they seek for uh community and the well-being of the community and i think all of those things uh, at least for me they they aligned with my principles and values and and they really 
um, they really are at the core of what I, I believe to be the past forward. Uh, so I think in, in a way, archaeology and that those hobbies that you do have kind of ground you and, 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 and allow you to give also this kind of perspective of things. I don't know if you do agree with that. Yeah, for sure. In fact, you know, I, thinking about uh, last week, we were in, two weeks ago, we were in, in Versailles outside of Paris. And we, yeah. you know, studied, learned about Louis XIV, the Sun King, and saw incredible uh, astronomical devices that were created during his, uh, his, uh, re his regency. And it's just amazing how that many years ago they were still doing things like that. And even if I go back further to, you know, if, if I had to, if I had a choice of who I could meet uh, from the past, uh, with my history interest, archaeology interest, science interest, you know, the, the person that I would love to meet, um, I, unfortunately, I can't speak Italian, and I don't think he spoke English, but would be Leonardo da Vinci. You know, look at somebody who, who has kind of put together all these different aspects of his interests into new ideas um, that were revolutionary at the time, and we find out now his flying devices and many of his other devices are fully functional devices that we could have created 10 years ago or five years ago. To me, that ability in his time to have that sort of foresight, putting together what he was interested in, what he learned as a painter, as an architect of human anatomy, to me is the person that I would like to emulate as closely as possible. Definitely. Uh, someone that is able to think outside the box, he doesn't even look at the box. He doesn't know existed because the concepts that he created are so advanced for his time that it's like I was saying to you, which which is kind of drawing here a parallel of why this uh, podcast comes about is, you know, the, the backlash that he received, the, the majority of people never really took him for, for, for uh, how I would say, for someone special, you know, and he's definitely one of the most brilliant minds that ever came across this earth so it's 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 kind of unfair to be to to be living in that time and now we are here discussing him and saying oh i would love to meet him and um i'm sure he had a very difficult time during his time to kind of to 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 transmit his ideas and 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 see people to accept them so yeah, absolutely yeah, absolutely we, went, we actually went to uh, vinci in italy and saw the house he lived in as a, as a child um, and he had a hard childhood. There's no question in terms of his birth, his family. Um, you know, great. It was great books about about his history. But he started with a big chip on his shoulder. But he didn't allow that to interfere with what he wanted to achieve. And I think you're right. I don't think he was appreciated at the time. He was certainly, you know, he had commissions. He he painted uh, great things. He was appreciated, but he wasn't recognized fully for what he was contributing to the future of mankind. And you know, I think that's unfortunate, but that I think brings us to the point that when anybody's working on a project, they can't think about what others are gonna say about their work. What they need to do is do what they think is the best thing, what's the right thing, what's gonna give them the, you know, what's gonna move what they're trying to do forward as much as possible. And if it's correct, at some point, maybe you'll get recognition. But recognition comes from your own success and what you're doing, not so much from what people think of what you're doing. And I think that's important distinction people should keep in mind when they're doing something that they think is good continue don't worry about what people say about it it, it comes to mind a question about that and um how many times did you receive criticisms from peers from colleagues about what you were doing 
and trying to kind of um, put put you in a different path or, or or set set the record straight and say no 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 you should go this way because it's better or they try to discourage you. Did did you experience that a lot? Is is that something that um, happened or still happens? Well, the biggest the biggest you know criticism against me trying to publish a paper. So you spend a lot of time with an idea. You do the research, you do the scientific analysis, the, the methods, you write up a whole thing, you spend hours writing, proofreading it. It's almost like a baby who worked so hard to create. You send it into a journal and it comes back rejected. Um, that That's, you know, I probably take it more personally than I should, but that's, um, that, that's a roadblock. But as I said, you, that means you send it to a different journal or you rewrite parts of it, you get some, you get some review, and you you know fix the fix based on what they say, and you send it to a different journal, and eventually it gets published. So you know pretty much everything I've ever written has been published eventually. Uh, there's one or two papers that we kind of gave up on that they probably weren't as good as they, they could be. Um, so that that's that's one form of criticism that that is tough because you put a lot of time and effort into it, but it's something you can get around. And again, the idea of getting criticism and not taking it as a final, but moving around that. I've had people criticize, you know, the different tests, different ideas, different statistics. Uh, sometimes that's led to teams, you know, not hiring me back for the next season uh, because I've given them, you know, the data, the ideas, and they look at it and they disagree with it. And I try to show them how the disagreement may not be accurate. And they, you know, at that point don't like that anymore and they don't renew the contract. Uh, okay. I work with other teams. Uh, I should say that the team I'm thinking of, and I can't tell you the name, since I left them, hasn't won a thing. Um, although they <laughs> spent a lot of money um, trying to get players, you know, to do it, but they haven't. They're they're definitely underperforming. Um, and uh, if you ask me, it has to do with their lack of insight into vision. Uh, but there are probably other factors as well. But so I think that again, lots and lots of roadblocks, lots and lots of criticism. Uh, none of it, you know, personal criticism. You know, they don't. It's not my bald head that people don't like. Yeah. Uh, but it's the idea that visions maybe not as important as I think it is, or I think they're mistaken, um, or it's that they don't just understand the idea. Okay, well there are other people. You know, a, a league is made up of many teams, and if one team doesn't want to maximize something, that's their fault. We'll go to the team that will, and you know that's led to seven World Series um, uh, championship teams that I've worked with, you know, many teams uh, coming up one or two, getting to the postseason. Um, vision is not the only thing that makes the team perform, but uh, as some clubs have learned, without it, you're not going to benefit. Yeah. Uh, that comes to mind um, something that my grandfather actually asked me one time. I was coming from a trip, it uh, doesn't matter which country, and I went there to present some, some ideas. And, and of course, uh, to what could it be of a medical department uh, and hit the composition and why you should choose, for instance, vision as one of the priorities and and what what should be also um, the budget and all of those things. And kind of, he asked me directly, what, what was the difficulty that you had? And the first thing that came to mind to describe that was how do you teach a blind person that was born blind what color is? And what I mean by this is the difficulty to sometimes convey what we have as knowledge or what we believe to be our knowledge or our idea of something that we really see as fundamental, like you were just saying, and I completely can uh, relate to what you said, which is they didn't win anything else after me. I, I left. 
okay, it's it's not just the vision part, of course, uh, but there are many components to it, and there are some which are more important than others. And at the same time, trying to explain to people that do not have the same background as you do, or sometimes even our colleagues, which are supposed to have the same background, it's it's so difficult. Let alone now talking to someone who is uneducated, doesn't doesn't understand how the brain works, doesn't understand what vision can make for, you know? So it could be so simple and it's at the same time su such a complex endeavor to, to try to see people what we are trying to, to, to show them. Well, it's certainly been a challenge all along. In fact, I, I, I told you I like to go in different directions. So one of the directions I'm, I'm currently working on, I'm about halfway through, is writing a book for athletes um, and the general population, not, not eye doctors or medical personnel, but general population about sports vision. And so it's exactly that is taking, you know, 30 plus years of knowledge and synthesizing it and presenting it in a way that's, you know, entertaining. I have anecdotes in the book about my experience, but also putting the scientific information in a way that can be easily understood and incorporated into the, you know, training, the correction evaluation for athletes, parents of athletes and so forth. Hopefully the book will come out um, at the end of the year, first part of next year. Um, I, I said about halfway through it, but it's exactly that challenge of taking that really scientific, you know, medical literature paper that I sent in to be published in a journal, which is very scientific, translating that into a way that can be meaningful, understandable, and actionable by by the athletes themselves. Great. So keep your eye out for for that book for sure. It's going to be fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so you've learned so much. If you had to do it all over again, did you have one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Good question. And I was thinking about that, that earlier. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say, I, I, I'd like to think that I have made all the correct choices at every branch point in my life. Um, and that I wouldn't change a thing. Um, and that's mostly true. I think the main thing I would change is be a little bit less, less uh, generous, maybe, and a little bit more uh, suspicious of people. There's been a lot of people that I've uh, connected to, a lot of companies that kind of connect with me to milk me for information and get as much as they can from me, but have no real intention of hiring me or paying for the information they're getting. And, you know, just like any business, you can't give away all the food in your store without getting some money in because shortly the store will have to close. And being a sports vision specialist, it's the same thing. I can't give away all the information without getting something to allow me to continue to learn more and to improve. And so I think the one thing I would change would be, uh, and, and this I've heard you know, from my wife and from, from others, is be maybe a little bit more suspicious and go a little bit less bar with companies, if you will, and it's mainly companies. It's not so much people, but there are, it's usually people in business, whether they're trainers, athletic trainers, or there are companies that are involved in sports vision uh, or vision in general, they want to get all information from me without paying for it. And that's probably the biggest mistake I've made. So at this point of your life, if you could just be remembered for one thing, what would it be? You know, my life isn't just sports vision. Uh, as I mentioned, I have other lots of interests and so forth. Uh, and if you think about, you know, uh, I'm interested in the, in, in the past and what's happened, but I'm also interested in, in the future. And the future is really my family and my kids. And, you know, that's, that's the ones who are going to, who are going to be me 
after I'm uh, no longer around. And to me, that's the, the most important thing. You know, I have on my wall a, uh, a document signed by my great-great-grandfather, who I never met, but um, it was from 1860. Uh, to me, that continuity of, of the family and the thinking and, and what we do, I think, is, you know, I'm one piece of a long, long string of, of lobbies, if you will. And to me, I want to make sure my job is to make sure the next piece is ready, primed, and can fulfill their their mission for the family, for, for the planet, for the next generation. So it's kind of your legacy in, in, a, in a way. They are your legacy. Absolutely. They're, they're me when I'm no longer around, right? Like I am yeah. my great-great-grandfather when he's not around. Um, I, I learned about what he did, you know, how, how he lived, what, what he is. His life was like uh, my grandfather. I, I've studied my family tree back to the year just around 1000 uh, AD uh, from Spain, actually north of Barcelona. And so that you know that that to me that that chain of of, of continual thought, work, you know, family uh, that that's that's important. And I, I'm one piece of that, and I want to make sure the next piece is is viable. That's one of the things that I, I kind of feel uh, we already touched a bit when we were talking about uh, your hobbies. But again, it comes to mind here that I think that's something that is being lost, which is people are forgetting where they come from and who are their father, mother, grandfather, grandmother. And what it, it does need to define you because sometimes we are we don't have the best of luck and we have some people that we are not proud of. But that, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't learn from it or at least try to understand what happened at that time and what you sh should bring for your life um, and try to change it even if, if it's something that you feel that you need to do better. But would you, would you agree with that, that this is something that's being lost in, in today's world? Absolutely. You know, the, the, today's world is a, is a uh, moment by moment world. You know, we look at, you look at uh, uh, social media and you can flip away, you know, something quickly that you don't like. It's living in the moment as opposed to looking for the future. And, you know, if anything, I probably think too much about creating positive future as opposed to uh, benefiting maximally from the present. Uh, to me, my, you know, if, if I figure out something on the computer, to me, that's a wonderful day. You know, I haven't done anything else except that. That's a wonderful day because I've, I've learned something. I've achieved something. To me, that's positive that I can use tomorrow and the next day. Uh, and I think people live too much in the day at the moment and not thinking enough about the past and how they can take the moment, the, the moment and the past and make a better future. And that's, I think, uh, that's unfortunate, uh, but that's the way society is kind of transformed. I don't think it's true of everybody. There's certainly many people that don't, don't live that way, but if you want to be happiest and most successful, you have to create that success for the future. You can't just sit in the moment and expect it's going to be better tomorrow. The whole idea of lottery, you know, to, to put money into a lottery and to hope you're going to get a, a billion dollars here. I think in the United States, it's about a billion dollars now. Wow. Uh, you know, to, to put the money in for that and to think, well, I don't have to do anything. I'm going to get a billion dollars. That's ridiculous. And, you know, take your dollar and buy a book, read that book, use what you learn. You'll do much more than a billion in the future. And but it's the easy way. People want the moment, what's easy, not doing a lot of work, being happy on the moment. And that's unfortunate, but that's the way a lot of people think now. I 100% agree. Unfortunately, that's that's the world we're living in right now and social media just made it 100 times worse or, or even more. 
And that's why we have now a huge problem with, with kids being depressed uh, when we never saw a kid depressed 15 years ago, 50 years ago. They didn't have the time to be depressed. They had so many things right. to do. They were playing, they were outside, they were they were with a uh, community, with uh, other colleagues. So that, that's really unfortunate. And just that, that brings me to mind. What do you think about that from a perspective of sports vision? and the athlete of the future, when we're talking about social media, the impact that it will have. Are you already seeing um, what's gonna happen or, or you think it's it's gonna be much worse than at this point in time? Yeah, I, I think social media already is having a, a, a negative impact. Um, and when I say social media, I'm not speaking about the internet and the ability to get information because that aspect of the internet, for example, to, to learn about things, to explore things, I think that's super. That that really is is empowering for people to be able to learn on their own and decide what they want to do. That that's the way it should be. But for people spending their time, and you know, I go to training camps quite often. In fact, tomorrow I'm going to a camp in Florida for a few days to do some work. When when I see people and they're off time, when they're not training, sitting in their phone and you know, flipping through Twitter or or those sorts of things, it's totally non-productive. They don't get anything out of it. And it's therefore detrimental to their desire to perform in the team and to advance in the sport and to whether they want to make a lot of money becoming a professional first team player or they want to have the fame of success, whatever their motivation is, what they're doing at that moment is hindering their success. And I've seen other players, uh, one comes to mind that, that was totally the opposite. Anything that he could do to try to be better, he would go try and do. So any off time he had, he was always trying to do something, learn something. What can what can he use to perform better? And he actually did very well. He was a, a major league ball player who did did very well for, for his entire career. But it's that attitude that would be much better than you have free time, pull out your phone and start playing on the social media. Because social media maybe has a one or two percent chance of helping you, but ninety eight, ninety nine percent of the time is just wasted time. And, you know, the only thing we have in our life that is totally ours is time. You know, even money is not important, it's time. And to spend your time, to waste your time, to waste your, your currency of life on something that's not beneficial is purely potentially enjoyable and maybe not even enjoyable. Uh, just to pass the time seems unfortunate. The, so two things come to mind. The first, uh, someone that has been on the news every single day, which I related because you come from baseball and you've won so much in baseball, which is what they call the unicorn Shohei Otani. They say that mm -hmm. he's a guy that is the second guy you mentioned, which is he's always focused, always doing some, something to improve, always trying to find the next thing, which I find fantastic because he's already something never seen before. You know, he's a, he's a, an outlier of the outliers. Yeah. Um, uh, and second, what you were saying opens, opens, um, hear my perspective for something, which is you were saying about what can hinder the, 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 the success of a player in a perspective of not putting in the work or not doing nothing productive or even worse, wasting the time, the currency of life that you have, which is time. But I see it also as you are programming your autonomous nervous system, you're programming yourself for failure because also it generates anxiety and all of the things that come with it. So. I fully understand and I see that perspective, at least from my my own side, I see it from that. What I was going through, uh, through um, in my mind while, while you were talking was, 
But don't you believe that this will go even deeper and this will be even more serious in a, in a perspective of sports vision specifically in terms of how the, the, the way that they will be able to focus the ball in, in the outfield or, or the movement or, you know, in terms of quality of sports vision, would you say that um, it, 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 we can make a point that this will have a detrimental impact in the quality of vision for the future? Well, you know, we're, we're kind of in the middle of what we call the myopia epidemic or pandemic, uh, myopia yeah. being nearsightedness. And if you look at the amount of people that are nearsighted uh, now versus what it was 100 years ago, incredibly different um, frequency or prevalence of myopia. Certainly in Asia, it's very significant. And even in the Western countries, it's, it's significant as well. And one of the thoughts that is driving that is the fact that people are doing much more work up close than they were in the past. You know, a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, people would have to go out in the fields. They would have to work or do other things. They, there was no, nothing up close to read. Some people didn't have books, electricity to read by. And so the amount of up close work was much less or plus time spent was much less. Now, recently, the last few decades with, with, uh, computers, laptops, uh, iPads, uh, tablets, phones, the amount of times people spend looking at something up close has dramatically increased. And one of the thoughts is that that near work has led to more nearsightedness. Well, nearsightedness is important because if you're a little bit nearsighted, you still feel like you see pretty good, but when you get to your sports, it's a disaster. And if you're not aware of the importance of vision, you don't know about sports vision, you have a little bit of nearsightedness, your chance of proceeding to a high level of play is pretty much zero. And so I, I think that that time spent on social media and time spent on devices could actually hinder your ability to move forward in your sport and all the hard work that you put into it, you know, that athletes put into it every day training, all the money they spend in tournaments and equipment and, and, and training, all those things become worthless when you have just a little bit of nearsightedness that's going to hinder your ability to recognize the spin of a baseball or a cricket ball or be able to make a shot properly or to block a goal if you're a keeper, you know, in, in soccer football. All those things are going to be hindered if you're just a little bit off. And a little bit off is going to be the difference between success and failure because the next guy who isn't off is going to beat you. Yeah. And I would say that um, not to compound uh, the, 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 the idea that you are more than qualified to, to make those statements. I think people might be here not understanding one thing that you're just saying how important it is because you have the perspective of not just being an ophthalmologist that works with sports vision, you are also a pediatrics ophthalmologist. So you know exactly the progression, you know what happens and what is the beginning of the problem and how it will look like. So I think you're more, we are privileged to have your, your insight in this because of that specifically. So I just want to mention that because I think it's extra important from what you just said to take, take notice and understand that we should prevent this and try to understand that this is something that is being developed because of what we call evolution. And so many times as um, Daniel Lieberman from Harvard said, evolution is not evolution, is disevolution. The concept is contrary, you know, we are not progressing in a good way. Yeah, you know, just just like anyone's life doesn't lead in a straight, perfect line to success. Sometimes there's you know, regressions, there's forward and backwards. That's as true of society in general, in the evolutionary human human beings in general, in terms of evolution. It doesn't always have to be, um, well, just look at how many different kinds of animals or bugs or, or fish there are. Some have this ability, some have that ability, but 
that ability didn't really help them very much, and they're kind of stuck where they are. And over time, you know, you can think that maybe humans uh, had the right combination of successes to get this far, but it doesn't mean that every one of our changes or improvements are going to be beneficial. Some of them will be the opposite. And the idea is not to get stuck into Neanderthal or into other early forms of humans who didn't progress, is to stay on a path of general progression forward. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to go off topic here, but uh, you have mentioned this so many times along the, our conversation that I just need to ask you this question, which was not programmed, which is you've talked so many times about purpose and what, what joy and, and, and taking uh, advantage of life. So I have to ask you, what brings you joy? It's <laughs> um, a good question. I, I would probably say to, when I critique myself, which I think is important to do as well, I would say that I don't allow myself enough time to simply enjoy things. Um, but I, I think I enjoy it I, every day. I haven't looked back. I look back at you know, the past weeks or months. I can't really identify a point that I didn't enjoy what I was doing because um, I enjoy different things. You know, whether it's um, speaking like we are now, to me, that's that's fun. That's, you know, uh, there's a quote. I don't, I don't, I can pull it up. There's a quote. Um, I'm trying to remember who said it. I had it earlier. Uh, a quote about that the, the best work in life is what you enjoy or something to that effect. And so if it doesn't feel like work, but you're having, you're enjoying it, then that's fine. And to me, that's, as I mentioned, if I program something and the program works, that's very satisfying. And I enjoy that. If it's having a meal at a restaurant that, you know, that is uh, different, but interesting, but tasty, that's enjoyment. Um, there's lots of ways to enjoy life. And, uh, it's not a matter of you know getting drunk, for example. Uh, it's not a matter of, of, of taking drugs at all. It's a matter of doing things that you feel are fulfilling, that you feel are beneficial, and they're positive, and that's enjoyment. I, I I can always see when you're talking, and right now I was just uh, the next question I was going to make you already answer it, so <laughs> I'm not going to do it. But what what I was about to say is that. Um, we can see how you're talking and when you're talking about um, specifically about your work and everything you're doing, how passionate you are about it. And I think that's one of the most important things that I can um, transmit from my experience, my personal experience of meeting you, which is the passion that came through when we were talking about certain subjects. And I think that's very powerful too. I think this is not just a, important for your day-to-day -day life, as you just mentioned, and I believe it is because it's 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 not going to be just work it's work but you you're having fun while you're doing it but it's also the way you communicate it's also the way that you um you interact with people you know the energy that you put out in 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 in, in the world and when when i first met you that was the the feeling that i got which is this is someone not just very knowledgeable and that has a lot of experience this is someone in love with what they do and they, they, they go the extra mile because, of, of course, they are competent in what they are doing, but also they are just passionate about that. And so uh, I, I commend you for that because I think you have, by, by chance, we already, <laughs> we already understood that, discovered something that really is super important. And that at the same time, you do it with passion. And that's fantastic. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, what's... I, I, it bothers me when I see people that 
kind of feel like they had nothing to do. Like I, I can't think of a, a day that I would say I have nothing to do. Um, I, I finish every day not having finished what I want to finish, what I want to do, because I have so much I'm interested in. Um, but for someone to like come on Saturday or Sunday and feel like, you know, what am I going to do now? With the, I'm not working. It's a day off. Yeah. To me, that's a golden opportunity. And I feel really sad for people who, who sit trying to figure out what to do because everybody has an interest. Everybody, you know, has the same brain, you know, and I, I was nowhere near the top of my class in high school in college. Um, nowhere near it. But what I think I had was stubbornness and an interest. And I think that's, if people were stubborn and interested, they would never be bored. They would never think that they have nothing to do because as long as you're interested in something and you're stubborn, you'll have plenty to do. Maybe too much to do. <laughs> yes, maybe too much. I definitely agree with that. So what is one question that you wished I'd ask you and how would you have answered that? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I saw that on, I saw that on your list earlier and I, I couldn't <laughs> think of one. Um, I'm not sure. I don't have a great answer on that one. No? Okay, no problem. Um, would you like to kind of um, finish this with, with a quote, um, a poem, a book, a reflection, or even maybe a movie, something that inspires you in an allostatic way and that you would like to share with, uh, with the audience? Do you have any specific? You can you know, Google it. That, Don't worry. <laughs> no, I have, I, have, I have it in front of me here because I, I actually I keep a list on my computer when I come across quotes that I think are are inspiring or, or uh, you know, help, help me think about how I do things. I keep a list of them. I have, I have many, many quotes because obviously there have been many brilliant people um, that have said many things and some of them were from songs. Some of them were from, you know, authors, some of them from politicians, it really quite varies. Um, one that has always, I always keep coming back to uh, since I first heard it. Uh, and it's actually was uh, uh, written initially, I think by George Bernard Shaw. Um, but it was repeated and probably made famous by, uh, John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, uh, okay. in the, in the early sixties. Uh, and that's the quote that some men see things as they are and ask why others dream things that never were and ask why not. Um, and to me, that's sort of the inspiration that I, uh, I've always kept in my mind of not just looking at things as they are and continuing in what we call a homeostatic manner, if we will, but taking the information that we have, um, what we see, and thinking how we can use it differently to make things better. And that's more of an allostatic approach, I think, to, to life. So I, I, I like that quote from the beginning, but then when we, we spoke earlier about, about this podcast, to me, that really hit home, um, emphasizing what allostasis means. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And just like that, you show us two things at the same time. We show, you show us this beautiful quote and you explain it in an allostasis way, which is fantastic. But at the same time, you know what you just show me? The consistency and the, how coherent you are about your actions and your ideals. Because it, 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 it brings me way back to when we were talking about Leonardo da Vinci. He is a person that was doing that exactly, which is he was not seeing things as they are, but also why not? What, what, why can they be something else? And I think that's probably one of the main reasons why you would love to, to have a coffee with him and sit down and, and discuss Absolutely. a few ideas. So what I need to do now is just thank you for your time and your patience, for your 
having accepted uh, having accepted this this invitation it was very gracious from you um thank you for reaching out in the past i hope we can in the future uh, maybe brainstorm some ideas and 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 who knows start something different um and once again i really appreciate you for the fact of taking the time and being here thank you Philippe. my pleasure hopefully hopefully some of my experience will be helpful to to someone else and allow them to grow and maximize their ability to contribute to to our, our society our planet i'm sure it, it will it will resonate with many people thank you so much